This is The Rounds Table. Hello, welcome back to The Rounds Table. Thanks for joining us this week, listeners. We've got a great show lined up for you, and none other than Dr. Lauren Lacroix to take us through it. She is an emergency physician at the University of Ottawa and a fellow in resuscitation at Queen's University. Lauren, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Karen. Let's get right into it. Take us through and introduce the article that you chose for this week. So the article that I chose this week is uh, looking at the risk of acute kidney injury when contrast media is given for CT scans in the emergency department. Uh, And this was published in January of this year, 2017, in Annals of Emergency Medicine. All right, so give us the bottom line, the main takeaway from this article. So in this large, single-center, retrospective cohort, looking at almost 17,000 emergency department patients, the administration of IV contrast was not associated with an increased frequency of acute kidney injury. And why is this important in the bigger context of the medical literature and patient care? Well, some background on contrast-induced nephropathy, it's actually cited as the third most common cause of iatrogenic acute kidney injury and has been linked to increased risk of initiating dialysis, of renal failure, stroke, and even death. And in the emergency department where I work, we're often faced with the balance of diagnosing life-threatening conditions using emergent imaging and the risk of proposed harm of IV contrast. Now, recent studies using more rigorous methodology looking at newer IV contrast have challenged this causal relationship between contrast and the development of AKI. Absolutely. I think that's something that I always wondered about is how much are we pumping up this risk of IV contrast and are we actually doing potential harm through omission of certain testing rather than commission of contrast-induced injury? So take us through the design of the study and where did it take place, Lauren? So this study was a retrospective cohort analysis, and interestingly, it used propensity score matching, which is a multivariate analysis looking at all the known variables that is meant to simulate randomization in retrospective trials. So yeah, they essentially look at known confounding variables. So in this case, they looked at sex, age, the initial creatinine level, whether they received crystalloids, nephrotoxic medications. And it's a statistical analysis that is meant to substitute randomization when you're using retrospective data. All right. So who did they include in this study to propensity match to each other? So included patients were aged 18 years or more, and they were patients who received a CT scan with or without contrast in the emergency department over a five-year period. And the patients had to have a serum creatinine level measured in the eight hours before the scan, and then a second level measured within 48 to 72 hours afterwards. The study group also added a second control group uh, to minimize selection bias. And this, these were patients in the emergency department who did not undergo any CT scanning. And what was the intervention or exposure in this case that they employed? So the exposure was a CT scan with contrast in the emergency department, and then the subsequent measured serum creatinine value. And I think you've already kind of mentioned it, but just for clarity's sake, the primary outcome that they were looking at? So primary outcome was the incidence of acute kidney injury. And to appease several different uh, groups, the authors actually used two separate definitions because there have been a few published in the literature. Uh, So the most common definition, as I mentioned, is an absolute increase in the serum creatinine greater than 44 micromoles per liter in standardized units or a 25% increase. 
and you already mentioned that it was measured sort of two days to uh, three days after the imaging. So what did they find with this interesting study? So looking at all three groups and using that traditional definition, the probability of developing an AKI was essentially the same across the board. So around 10% in all three groups. Contrast-enhanced CT patients were no more likely to develop an acute kidney injury than all the patients who did not receive contrast media, or than patients who underwent unenhanced CT, so a CT scan without contrast. And using their multiple logistic regression model, or their fancy stats analysis, they were unable to find a significant odds ratio for acute kidney injury, looking to define contrast-induced nephropathy. So... You said that they matched for, or they controlled for a variety of different, you know, patient factors, age, gender, comorbidities, etc. Do you think that there was still potential for bias by the physicians to order or not order a CT contrast enhanced study for some individuals? I think that definitely comes into play into this study, and it's something that you can't really avoid in retrospective data, unfortunately. Looking at the estimated GFR for all of the groups, the patients who underwent an unenhanced CT or no CT at all were much more likely to have some degree of chronic kidney disease or some decrease in their GFR. So we can't account for clinical practice variation, unfortunately, with retrospective data. Okay. Any other uh points of concern or interest that you wanted to raise about this particular study? Well, I think more interesting or more important than whether or not there was a bump in the serum creatinine a couple days after the contrast was given, they also looked at patient-centered outcomes such as a new diagnosis of chronic kidney disease, initiation of dialysis or a renal transplant within six months, and they were unable to find a difference in any of the groups for those patient-centered outcomes. One other important thing to remember, though, is that because patients had to have a second serum creatinine drawn within two or three days, more than 90% of these patients were admitted to hospital. So that could have an effect on the generalizability of the results for specifically for me in the emergency department when I'm dealing with giving contrast to patients who may then go home and I don't, I'm not able to follow them up. And do they give us any kind of indication as to what types of problems these patients are presenting to the emergency room with? So unfortunately, because it's such a large study, there was no breakdown of the types of scans or the types of contrast that was given. In the supplemental data, they mentioned that most of the patients received this low or isoosmolar contrast and uh, in low amounts, so a, a low, small volume of Uh, contrast that was given. And this is a huge change from previous studies that have been done using high osmolar contrast or looking at studies using angiography, uh, intraarterial contrast, where you're much more likely to develop AKI following those interventions. Right. And I I guess just to sort of push that point a little further, you know, like, are they are they controlling for the diagnosis or the suspected diagnosis that, that they're investigating with the CT scan? So for example, Somebody who presents with a suspected pulmonary uh, embolism and gets a CT pulmonary angiogram versus somebody who has septic shock and is looking for an intra-abdominal problem 
those two patients would have a very different probability of developing pre-renal injury based on the just based on the diagnosis that they're presenting with. And so that might affect your overall outcome as to whether they develop contrast-induced nephropathy or not, irrespective of their other baseline creatinine, et cetera. Did they, did they control for that in any way? They did. So they, they used acute illness severity indicators as part of their propensity matching. So whether the emergency department consulted the intensive care unit was a factor that came into play, as well as hypotension and anemia. Uh, so they, they controlled for the patients who were sicker, definitely. All right. So put it all together for us through that discussion. What do you think on the balance of strengths and weakness in this particular study? So I think this study has several strengths. It's the largest study of its kind. It had a very broad inclusion criteria. And as we talked about, they did some statistical analysis to account for known confounders. Um, some of the limitations of the study, obviously it was a retrospective data. It's a single center, so doesn't account for practice variation. And one problem with propensity matching is that it only accounts for known variables. So unlike randomization where you hope that even unknown variables will shake out on either side, you really have to know what you're looking for in this type of study or analysis. Okay, so what are you, what are the main takeaway learning points that you think uh, our listeners would benefit from knowing about? So, in this large, well-designed study, IV contrast was not found to be associated with an increased frequency of acute kidney injury in emergency department patients. So, how I will take this information going forward, working in the emergency department, which at times can be fast-paced and um, high acuity, we're often faced with the challenge of diagnosing life-threatening conditions quickly. And my takeaway from this study is that we shouldn't be delaying emergent contrast-enhanced CT scans while waiting for a serum creatinine to come back. One signal that came through in this study as well was that there could be some protective value of the administration of crystalloids. So in patients who are at risk of acute kidney injury, such as patients with diabetes or CHF or with known renal dysfunction, there might be some benefit to administering crystalloid fluids before the CT with contrast is done. So nevertheless, uh, like most things in medicine, it comes down to a balance of risk and benefit, and you got to look at the person in front of you and the problem they're presenting with. And I like your point, Lauren, about you know not necessarily delaying urgent imaging that they might need for a, an important diagnosis while you're waiting for other investigations like their serum creatinine to come back if they're not known to have underlying chronic kidney disease. Well, thank you, Lauren, for that. I appreciate it. It was an interesting uh, study to take us through. Hi listeners, it's Emily Hughes and Shaliza Halani back with another special segment on The Rounds Table. We are both medical students at the University of Toronto. Today, we are focusing on a recent article by Volkow et al. published in JAMA on marijuana for pregnancy-induced nausea and vomiting. Who knew this was a recent trend? Today, we will explore the evidence. Shaliza, tell me a bit about the use of marijuana in pregnancy. Thanks, Emily, for the introduction, and hello to all of our listeners. As you mentioned, a recent article by Volkow et al. published in JAMA highlighted that pregnant women are turning to marijuana use for its antiemetic properties to treat pregnancy-induced nausea and the more severe and prolonged form, hyperemesis gravidarum. In hyperemesis gravidarum, nausea and vomiting can lead to dehydration, ketonuria, and more than 5% weight loss. 
It also leads to electrolyte abnormalities and sometimes enteral or total parenteral nutrition. So why are people turning towards marijuana as the cure? Interestingly, non-evidence-based internet sources have been advertising the use of marijuana in pregnancy. Data from the National Survey of Drug Use and Health shows its use is on the rise. Approximately 4% of pregnant women between ages 18 and 44 years used marijuana in the past month in 2014, compared with approximately 2% in 2002. We at the Roundtable felt it was important to cover this topic to keep listeners in the loop. Agreed, Emily? Absolutely. So why are pregnant women smoking up? Tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, is the psychoactive ingredient in marijuana, and it is a partial agonist at the type 1 cannabinoid receptor, also known as the CB1 receptor. These receptors are in the dorsal vagal complex, an area of the brainstem that is involved with mediating nausea and vomiting, and therefore it has antiemetic properties. A systemic review and made it Meta-analysis showed low-quality evidence for the effectiveness of cannabinoid drugs for treating chemotherapy-induced nausea. Antiemetic effects are also present with cannabidiol, another cannabinoid in marijuana. Wow, so what are the official recommendations surrounding this? The official recommendations from the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, also known as the ACOG, states that pregnant women experiencing nausea particularly during the first trimester, should not be using marijuana. This is the period of organogenesis and poses the potential greatest harm to the fetus. There is insufficient data to evaluate the effects of marijuana use on infants during lactation and breastfeeding, and in absence of this, its use is discouraged. Is there any evidence in any human studies around marijuana use in pregnancy? So there is limited data to corroborate these warnings. A review and meta-analysis showed that infants born to mothers who used marijuana while pregnant were more likely to be anemic, have lower birth weight, and be placed in the NICU after birth compared to infants born to women who do not use marijuana. I wonder if there were any confounding factors in these studies. Definitely. Some of the limitations include a lack of control for other illicit drugs, tobacco, and heavy alcohol use in the patient groups. Articles also often report unique outcomes, and cutoffs are not standardized, which makes drawing conclusions in this case difficult. I'm also wondering, you know, is there any biologic plausibility to all this concern? For sure. The endocannabinoid system is present from around day 16 of human gestation when the CNS develops. The system is thought to play a role in brain development and proper formation of the neural circuitry. Therefore, substances that affect this system could potentially have deleterious effects on both structural and functional fetal brain development. Absolutely. Sounds like something I wouldn't want to take the chance with. So what should we do now, you know? What are our future directions? One of our ongoing concerns includes that the THC content being used today is much higher than in previous generations when the teratogenicity studies were done. Marijuana now is also being used in different formulations such as hash oil, which is a concentrated extract and has a higher THC concentration. Further research is needed to understand the use of these formulations and the effects on fetal development. Does public health tell us anything about what we should be doing as clinicians? So far, none of the states have listed pregnancy as an indication for medical marijuana. Moreover, a study from the United States discussed that the volume of public health messages about the risks of perinatal marijuana use is low and content has differed among states. There is an obvious need for better and more clear public service messaging so pregnant mothers can make an informed decision on pregnancy-associated nausea and vomiting. Great summary. 
It sounds like the interest in the use of medical marijuana for medical conditions outpaces the evidence and research for appropriate indications. Absolutely, which is why it's always important to be aware of societal attitudes and trends around substance use. Certainly. Thank you so much. All right, let's shift now to the study that I chose for this week, which is another cohort-based study that looks at the opioid prescribing patterns of physicians who work in the emergency department and the risk to patients for going on long-term opioid therapy. This was uh, published and written by Michael Barnett in the New England Journal of Medicine on February 16th, uh, 2017. Another topic near and dear to my heart. Uh, So, Kieran, tell us the main message for this article. Well, brace yourself, Lauren, as a practicing emergency physician. This retrospective cohort study that looked at adults in the United States who visited the emergency department found that there was a three-fold difference in opioid prescribing rates by emergency doctors who all worked within the same hospital. Um, And if you were treated by these physicians, those who were deemed to be a high-intensity prescriber, you were at a 30% increased odds of going on to long-term opioid therapy afterwards. Well, that difference doesn't surprise me, but the uh, long-term outcomes do. So uh, tell me why you chose this article. Well, we have reached a critical mass or a critical breaking point when it comes to uh, the epidemic of opioid abuse as a major public health concern in North America, both in the United States and Canada, and I think elsewhere in the world as well. Um, And some of the leading theories have proposed that one of the key factors in the creation of this problem And the perpetuation of this problem is by physicians who are, quote-unquote, over-prescribing opioids. So just to give you an idea of how bad it it is, it's estimated that enough opioids are prescribed in a single year to provide every single American adult with 10 milligrams of oral morphine every four hours for a month. That's a lot of opioids that are being prescribed. And at the bottom of that, this study really sought to examine how opioid prescribing was varied between physicians uh, within the same hospital, and then the implications that those have for long-term opioid use by the patients that they treat. Very interesting, looking at the downstream effects. Uh, So let's take us through the methods. What was the design of the study? So this was a retrospective cohort study, um, as a lot of studies these days are that are very large. And it used uh, administrative data from the Medicaid Services Database in the United States. And it looked at adults who presented to the emergency department between 2008 and 2011. And who were the patients included in the study? So it looked at all adults who were presenting to the emergency department with their first visit to a U.S. emergency department within a time period framed. So just to clarify what that means, it's not necessarily their first visit ever, but they only looked at the individual's first visit within that time frame and the risk following that. So if they had subsequent visits to the emergency department, those weren't included in calculating their risk for going on to long-term opioid therapy. Now, individuals must not have had a prior opioid prescription within the six months prior to that quote-unquote first uh, ED visit, and they excluded individuals who had cancer or those who were enrolled in a hospice program and importantly, those visits that resulted in hospital admission. So keep that in mind. Okay, interesting. Uh, And what was the intervention? So they asked the question, does opioid prescribing vary between emergency department physicians within the same hospital? 
And what impact does that prescribing behavior have on an individual's risks for going on to long-term opioid therapy? So here's what they did. First, the authors determined if a patient was prescribed and subsequently filled an opioid uh, prescription within seven days of an emergency department visit. And then they, they figured out who that doctor was that prescribed it for them. Next, they looked at the rate of opioid prescribing, which they defined as the proportion of ED visits that resulted in an opioid prescription for each treating emergency department physician. So they determined that rate of opioid prescription, and then they looked at the variation in the rates for physicians within the same hospital. So they then broke down physicians in the same hospital as being a high-intensity or a low-intensity prescriber. They actually broke them up into quartiles, but several hospitals in the database, they didn't have enough physicians within the hospital to actually break them into quartiles, so they ended up sort of stratifying them into high versus low-intensity prescribers. And finally, they then determined the odds of long-term opioid therapy for an individual, depending on whether they receive the prescription from a high or low-intensity prescriber. Uh, so what was the primary outcome of the study? So as I've mentioned a couple of times, it was looking at long-term opioid use, but I'm just going to tell you what the definition of that. So they defined six months or more of opioids supplied within the 12 months after the emergency department. That was determined to be long-term opioid use because theoretically, if you had a fractured leg, you know, that you were requiring opioid therapy for, that should only go on for a few weeks, not for six months or more. I think the interesting point to think about when it comes to that time frame of six months or more is that other physicians, so not just the emergency physician who started the cascade, but other physicians are likely required to continue this prescribing practice of opioids beyond a certain time point. So it's not to just blame the emergency department physicians here. Now, the secondary outcomes of interest that they looked at were the potential consequences of uh, either opioid over or under use. So that would be like repeated emergency department visits or hospitalizations, either for undertreated pain or opioid toxicity. And they looked at the reasons for those visits to help figure that out. And it's interesting because I often wonder in that index visit if you're creating any kind of dependency or habit. Uh, so let's go through the results. What was the main finding of the study? Well, using administrative data, they were able to look at 215,000 individuals who received an opioid prescription from a low-intensity prescriber. They compared those to 162,000 individuals who were given opioids by a high prescriber. And they found that no clinically significant differences existed between those two groups of individuals. So the 215,000 versus 162,000 patients, they looked the same. Um, so there would be less likely to have a reason why they might go on to different opioid use. Now, if you looked at the rates of opioid prescribing between low versus high intensity prescribers, that varied by a factor of just over three within the same hospital. And if you broke that down into absolute numbers, the rate of 7% were low-intensity prescribers to 24% of emergency visits resulted in an opioid prescription in the high-intensity prescribers. At 12 months, and after, you know, adjusting for all the various individual-level factors that may impact upon someone's likelihood to receive an opioid, individuals who received opioids by a high-intensity prescriber were 30% more likely to use opioids on a long-term basis. So if you want to put this in absolute numbers, 
The rate of long-term opioid use was 1.5% for those cared for by a high-intensity prescriber versus 1.1% when prescribed uh, opioids by a low-intensity prescriber. Definitely. Are there any other limitations to the study that we haven't gone over? Uh, I wouldn't say there's anything major limitations that I would really point out, but I think if you sort of take the study and look at the strengths and weaknesses, I think overall it's a really well-conducted observational study. They do some very robust analyses to help minimize the chance that you know your measured and unmeasured factors aren't unduly impacting upon the results. And I think that we really need to take a hard look in the mirror and reflect upon our own opioid prescribing behavior and read the latest chronic pain guidelines uh, to inform our evidence-based practice after reading this study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, will this study change the way that you practice? So I think for me, there are three things to take away from this study. I'm not an emergency physician, but the variation that you see in physicians in an emergency department in their opioid prescribing behavior, raising interesting questions as to why this exists. And I think, you know, that this study, it focuses on emergency department physicians, but I don't think that we should focus our our energy on the emergency department physicians in particular. I think that any physician who prescribes opioids needs to look at themselves and needs to look at their behaviors and ask, why are some physicians over prescribers and others are not? Now, a physician's prescribing behavior is positively associated with the probability that an individual will become a long-term opioid user, and that's important from a public health standpoint. So potentially, we need some higher level involvement, whether that be a government or a government-appointed agency, to get involved for potential audit and feedback and academic detailing to help physicians in their prescribing practices. And overall, I really think we need to look at ways to mitigate this impact on individuals as opioid dependency and abuse continues to be an increasingly important public health crisis. On a personal level, will it change my practice? I think it continues to highlight the need for myself to reevaluate my opioid prescribing behavior, Um, although I don't really have any way to know if I'm a high or low intensity prescriber at the current time. Mm -hmm. I think part of this becomes a shared decision-making model as well and conversations that you have to have with patients surrounding pain management and alternative modalities uh, so that they're aware that you're not discounting their pain. You're just offering them uh, alternatives to opioids and it shouldn't scare people away from prescribing opioids, but just doing it in a responsible fashion. Exactly. I think it's an excellent point. Well, thank you, Lauren. A great episode, as always, when you're on the show. Let's get to my favorite part of the show, the good stuff segment, where we're talking about what we are reading about. Lauren, what's catching your attention this week? So an interesting paper or uh, news article that I read recently was in the, the CBC this past week, but it was done based on a study published in circulation actually by uh, a colleague, Dr. Steve Brooks, who uh, is an emergency physician at Kingston General Hospital. Um, But they looked at the placement of AEDs or defibrillators in Toronto and the likelihood of their use and mapped it out based on where these things should be. Um, And they found that the places that cardiac arrests were the most frequent and where defibrillators were needed were actually coffee shops. So an AED in your local Tim Hortons or Starbucks, uh, and as well as ATMs, because these are locations that are likely to be open with prolonged hours. So instead of putting them necessarily in schools or in community centers, AEDs should really be placed in 
areas that aren't going to be locked up and aren't only open during business hours. Uh, so I thought that that was a really interesting study and that putting an AED in the more than 300 Tim Hortons that exist in Toronto might have a very significant impact in saving lives in cardiac arrest. Hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that with us. Well, I read about something entirely different. At the time of recording this episode, it's uh, during the March Madness basketball tournament through the NCAA, and I came across uh, an article on National Public Radio that looks at the interface between uh, medical therapy and human behavior, specifically male human behavior. So the article was looking at vasectomies and how one particular urologist motivates men uh, to get their vasectomies done, and he encourages them to get them done in March. Why March? Because you go in for a little snip sip, you come back out and you have doctor's orders to sit back and watch nonstop basketball. So you'd think this would be, you know, in jest, but it's not. It's actually a real phenomenon. And it uh, has worked so well for some of these clinics that there's sort of a copycat effect going on at different sporting events across the, the season. Uh, uro urology clinics will advertise to and make, you know, marketing pushes to have men have their vasectomies done so that they will come in, get them done, and then they can guilt-free sit on their couch and watch the sports that they're looking forward to. So I thought it was just kind of a fun and lighthearted way to talk about vasectomies on the show. <laughs> Nobody wants to see what that bracket looks like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well done. Well, Lauren, thanks again for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the show, and we look forward to what's in store the next time. And thanks for tuning in, listeners. Uh, tune in next week for another exciting show here on The Rounds Table. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week?